It would not be inaccurate to describe Richard Fry as an old-fashioned adventurer. He sailed across the Atlantic in a boat not much more than 40 foot long, and with his best friend, he motorcycled down to Israel. Hastings born and bred, he's just published a book that charts his love affair with a life at sea. Called Lost Odyssey, it also reflects his three-decade-long obsession with life in the West Indies, somewhere he first visited in 1980, and where, at various points in life, he seriously considered making his home. Lost Odyssey is a collection of letters that charts his relationship with a boat he bought, with a plan to restore and sell on. One reviewer says it will appeal to anyone who has ever felt tempted to leave it all behind and follow a dream. I met Richard recently to hear about the inspiration for the book and about a life that has been full of colour and yes, of adventure too. This is the first of a two-part podcast and before we get on to discussing the book and chatting about what he describes as the sometimes abusive relationship he had with the boat called Odyssey, we chatted about his first trip to the West Indies, his life at sea and what it's really like to spend 36 hours mid-Atlantic caught up in a tropical storm when you're hundreds of miles from anyone who can offer help, assistance or rescue. As Richard says with typical understatedness, you learn self-reliance. My name's Stuart Bailey and this is Hastings in Focus. I was talking to some friends at the weekend about your book and having met you and and the fact that we were doing this interview Um, and she said you sounded like a good old-fashioned adventurer. Is that how you see yourself? Well it's certainly true that when I was a child I spent my time mostly out in St Helens woods climbing trees and I imagined myself to be at the top of a mast of a square rigger out on the ocean because I'd read I used to read copiously about you know people like Cook and Drake and and Nelson, and I kind of felt as though I had been born in the wrong century. Um, although my parents weren't the kind of parents that had yachts, and I had no real sailing experience in my in my early childhood. You, you, you're born and brought up in Hastings, so obviously boats are in your line of sight on a daily basis. Did that create the magic? I think that does get into your soul, the fact that you can, you've always got that empty horizon that you can look out over and, and wonder what's on the other side of it. And uh, yes, there were always ships going up and down the channel and, and there, was the, there were the, the ships on the beach down at the old town. But um, I never ever wanted to be one of those people that has to drag boats up and down the shingle. And still to this day, if somebody asks me to give them a hand with their boat, I, you know, it really sticks in my craw. <laughs> I only want to better get on a boat that I can step off the dock and untie the lines and go. I don't like wet boats. When you left school, you um, went to work with wood. You, you became a, a cabinet maker and an antique restorer. It seems as if there was that skill was transferable to you, what you then did later in life. Well, certainly, um, Odyssey was the third boat that I've owned, and the previous two, which I co-owned with a good friend of mine, were both wooden boats. So uh, with wooden boats, there's always repairs and there's always work that needs doing to them. And um, yes, I did. Uh, I was able to transfer some of my cabinet making skills. But the issue with boats, of course, is that there are no uh, right angles. So that it's a different kind of woodwork, actually a kind of woodwork that I now find more enjoyable uh, in many ways than working on furniture. But also the issues with boats are is, is the fact that you're often in extremely constrained positions positions where you're having to work and that can make life make life very difficult also I would say that 
um, you know, my, my first part of my career was all, all about restoration of antique furniture and there's something about something about the notion of period furniture and the quality of the, the joinery and the quality of the timbers and, and the time from which they came, which is somehow commensurate with the, those early days of wooden sailing ships. You were 19 when you first found yourself in, in, in the West Indies. How does that bit of the story fit into your life? Well, uh, in those days, the, the West Indies was a much more inaccessible place. So we had to fly to Miami and then wait for uh, 36 hours for a connection and then fly down to... Uh, St. Martin. And um, so this would have been in 1980. And yes, the era of package tourism had begun, but package tourism hadn't really reached the West Indies. So it was a much, a much more exotic, uh, perhaps more exclusive destination back then. I had uh, no real uh, travelling experience before then, but of course, because we were being looked after by Doug Copeland, the, the antique dealer, and chaperoned, we, we, we didn't have to make any decisions about, about getting there uh, that were that involved. But at the same time, one of the greatest things about that uh, experience was that it was the only time I've witnessed a boat that's being run by two uh, black na native West Indians. The skipper was a Grenadian and the, the first mate, Kunta, was from Dominica. And normally there are very, very few uh, black people working in the sailing industry. And I got the chance to, um, to live and, uh, with two Rastafarians, get to know their culture, get over my any uh, fear or inhibition I had about, about being with black people, which I think a lot of white people do have. And uh, it, that also set me up for, for life. That must have been a, a complete culture shock. It was extraordinary, especially when the first night we went out, he took us ashore to go and buy some go and buy some grass actually into the sort of uh, ghetto lands of St Martin and uh, we found ourselves in the dark the only white people surround and it, and it, it completely freaked both of us out actually and, but it was a kind of ring of fire because once we'd been through that the first time the next time it got easier and then it just became very very normal very very quickly. Because you mentioned that you're being chaperoned, you're having someone to tell you where to go or perhaps more importantly where not to go. That didn't really happen. Doug used to go ashore of his own and often Brett and I would just stay on the boat because we were kind of saving our money. So we, didn't, we weren't that adventurous really when we were in the West Indies the first time. Um, partly because when we, we were in St Thomas, the US Virgin Islands, and already then that place had got quite a violent reputation. Uh, so we were we had to be pretty a bit careful about about going ashore there and then St Bart's which is one of the richest perhaps the richest celebrity island in the whole of the West Indies um, was both uh, very expensive and, and not really our, our scene uh, to be honest so we stayed mostly on the boat and uh, listened to the great radio uh, the great music on the radio because the, every island has got its own radio station and so you can just point the aerial in any direction and pick up the most yeah, fantastic uh, music. So in, in that tour, we, we stayed mostly on the boat and uh, we did our sailing, we did our work with a few, a few runs ashore. And were you repairing or restoring that boat? Yes, we were. Yeah, she was in a bad way. He bought her uh, fairly cheaply and uh, we were fixing her up so that he could uh, resell her. How long did that take? We were on board for, uh, I think I was on board for about six months and Brett stayed on for another, another uh, six weeks perhaps. But I, uh, I kind of, my relationship with the owner ran its course, shall we say. And uh, in the end, I found myself sleeping on the beach, which uh, I got some more well-paid carpentry work on the island, uh, perhaps the best paid job I'd ever had at that, at that point, but I had nowhere to sleep. And uh, sleeping on the beach in the tropical 
climate may sound uh, like you know a kind of paradise to some people, but once the sand flies have bitten you a hundred times, and you te- you know it's, it's it's not a pleasant experience. I mean, coming back, having experienced all of that, how how did that feel? Did you did you come back to Hastings at that point? Uh, yes, I did come back to Hastings, and then um, I sort of uh, we did have another trip. We went down to Israel on a motorbike and lived on a kibbutz. This is Brett and I again uh, for six months. We had another another adventure the following winter, but um, I ended up working in London um, and uh, a, a top restoration uh, company, and I learned it's really put finishing uh, touches to my my skill set as an antique restorer. During the early part of that time, I started making some money and uh, I started thinking, well, what am I going to do uh, with this money? What can I do? And, and I thought, well, I'd, what I'd like to do is, is buy a boat and sail back to the West Indies with my own boat and then and, and live out there and explore the islands. Mm. So I had this conversation with Brett and uh, Brett had already been in the Merchant Navy before he met me. And he confided that he had too had also had this dream of sailing the Atlantic. So we, we combined our, <laughs> our dreams and... Uh, Decided that that's what we would do. So to the to the layman, the the idea of sailing across the Atlantic in your own boat, I mean, what what size was the boat? Uh, she was a forty two foot. Right, um, and there was you, Brett, a couple of crew members. Yeah, there was two other guys that we got from a company called Crew Savers. It was quite an interesting mixture, actually. One of them was guy. One of them was an old um, Etonian maths teacher who who was uh, teaching at a public school, I believe, um, about thirty years old. Uh, there was Rory, who was a, a 22-year-old um, biology student. Um, and then there was Brett, who was very working class. Uh, and then there was myself, who was a kind of grammar school, middle class chap. So there was quite an interesting mixture of uh, the four of us on that on that vessel. And how long did the trip take? The trip, actually, from uh, the, the, the trade winds route, which is the, the traditional way of going to the West Indies from England, you, you sail down to the Canary Islands and then you go directly across from there. So... We left Eastbourne and uh, we went down to Falmouth. And actually, the, the thing I always say is that we, we weren't especially experienced. We had had a boat and we'd, we'd sailed uh, around and around in the channel and we'd done our various you know, yacht master courses. But our previous longest uh, trip was 120 miles up into the North Sea to Vlissingen, which is the nearest part of Holland. And so when we set off from Eastbourne to Falmouth, which is 250 miles, we were doubling our previous longest passage. And then when we went from um, Falmouth down to La Coruña across Biscay, which is f- 500 miles, we were doubling again. And then after that, the, not long after that, it was an 800-mile uh, passage out to Madeira from um, from Lisbon. And um, again, so we're almost doubling up. And I, I very memorably recollect Brett saying to me at one point, uh, after maybe after we'd been in some weather or we, we'd had some problems, said, look, we're not... We're not experienced enough to sail across the Atlantic Ocean. And I said, no, Brett, we aren't. But by the time we get to the Canary Islands, we will be. (laughs) (laughs) And I suppose at that point, it's too late to turn back in. It is. There was a very strong feeling once we crossed the Bay of Biscay. I remember looking back across, you know, the wind had blown us there. And I think it's too too far now. And each time, each... each, uh, passage that we would make down to the next destination we feel we were further and further away there was a, fe- a fantastic feeling of there being no going back yeah, which must be both liberating and terrifying at the same time yes the two things are very closely uh, you know allied i think <laughs> and, and this was all under sail yes yes although actually uh, many people will try and make out 
the, the fact is is that on a sailing boat quite you probably if you're making a passage and you have to go you know you you have to go where you need to go and the wind is doing what it's doing then then you may probably spend a third of the time uh, under some sort of motor power as, as well as sailing and sometimes of course if there's no wind whatsoever then you you just you're just motoring so the the that whole journey so from leaving Eastbourne to arriving in in the West Indies how long did that, that take well okay time? so it takes it took about um, it took us about two months to get the boat down to uh, the Canary Islands and then we left her in uh, Port of Magan in Grand Canaria for three months during the hurricane season uh, because that's not a great time to be crossing the Atlantic uh, we went back down again in November and then it's, it took us 23 days uh, to go across. And we did sail the whole way then because um, our engine uh, broke halfway across. We were in a, we were in a tropical storm uh, with uh, very large seas, uh, etc. And the engine got, we didn't know it at the time, but the engine got filled up with salt water and wouldn't, wouldn't start beyond then. So we ran, ran out of power. Uh, we were actually gradually driven back into the 18th century as a result of the <laughs> things that were happening to us, which was again a kind of dream coming true, but at the same time something which made it a little bit more arduous. Um, and, and this time when you got there, your, your wife and family were, were waiting for you? Or, no, or what, we, down? what we arranged was that my, my wife's uh, father lived in America with his, uh, his new partner. And um, they went over to Boston. My wife and two kids went to Boston. My children went to school in America for uh, six weeks. And um, then they came down to St. Kitts. They arranged to hire a, a big house up on the hill in St. Kitts just before Christmas. And uh, we uh, uh, were to get the boat there at the same time. And then we would all have a, a reunion and a, a large uh, sort of family holiday. Yeah. And did that work out as planned? Well... <laughs> What the strange the, the problem was was that because we'd been I think even if we hadn't been in that storm uh, the the experience would have still have changed me you know if you if you sail if you cross an ocean under sail uh, certainly for the first time when you look in the mirror on the other side you are not looking at the same person that you mm. you were when you left and I think that because of the storm we were in I had I had some PTSD I remember thinking at the time of the storm I was so terrified. Um, I prayed to every single God that I could possibly think of and I thought that there's no time for me to have an emotional reaction now. Having an emotional reaction is of no use to me whatsoever. This is a survival situation. Um, and so I think that, that that's what goes on with PTSD. You lock up uh, stress as a result of fear, which can then uh, emerge later. So although you know, compared to being in combat in Iraq or something, this is not uh, on that sort of level, but I do think that I had, I had some, some stress of that kind and the best thing would have been if I could have been in a harbour with other men and women that had just sailed across the Atlantic and just talked about that and kind of debriefed myself, then that would have been far more healthy than suddenly trying to connect with these people who had just flown down from America and, and didn't actually, even my own children. Uh, scarily, I didn't feel as though I had anything in common with at first. It was quite alienating. I suppose because they, they would see what you'd done as being a success and a triumph, whereas you're still focusing on those terrifying moments. How, how long were you actually in the tropical storm for? The storm uh, lasted for 36 hours uh, at full uh, full bore, although it was building for a little while before then. Um, and we uh, we had to do the thing which is the, la the kind of last resort, which is you, 
you, uh, you know, whenever anyone uh, wants to do something like sail across an ocean, do some serious sailing, they, they, they read every book they can find and the first chapter they always turn to is storms. Everyone's terrified of being in a storm. That's the thing that you're most, it's the thing that you're most fascinated by and it's the thing that you will, if you sail far enough, inevitably have to face. Um, but this, uh, this uh, one of the things that you, that you do, the recommended actions, if, if, when all else uh, has failed, is that you, you take the sails down and you trail very, very long ropes called warps out over the back of the boat with some kind of a resistance. It could be an old milk crate, it could be a, a clump, you know, we had a big clump of old tugboat rope. And it acts as a kind of break, so that that keeps the boats pointing towards uh, the, the direction the wind is going in. And the, press, the wind pressure on the mast alone is enough to drive the boat forward. And then you just uh, go below and you, and you sit it out, you know, or you go to sleep, which is, which is what we did. It, it actually worked. It worked perfectly, but um, uh, funnily, strangely, everybody else went to sleep and I didn't really ma manage to. So I kept running around the boat, pumping the bilges. And I, and I did go out on the, into the cockpit once because I thought, well, if we're all going to die, I want to see, see it again. And uh, I clipped myself on, out, went out through the doors on my hands and knees. And I looked out and it had been heavy rain by then. So it had hammered down all the white uh, breaking crests of the waves. And I will never forget this scene. It was like a vast alien landscape of these grey dunes just extending off into the far far distance you know undulating and it was it was extraordinary the whole thing the whole thing was an extraordinary experience being in the midst of that with literally i suppose no support you, you there must be no other experience about being alone because there's no land anywhere to go to there's nobody there are no other ships you are entirely on your own the, yes the, you are you. especially in that uh, era, I mean, you could buy satellite phones back then, but they were extremely expensive items. We had a radio which had a range of about 25 miles. Yeah, there's no, there's no. You have to, if you take on a, a you know, a experience like that, you have to plan for having no help and no support whatsoever. Mm. I mean, sometimes people say, oh, well, couldn't you ask for a helicopter to come out? And those people have no idea of the distances involved because a helicopter's got a 300-mile range. That's 150 miles out. And 150 miles back and you're you're you know if you're 1500 miles from any land when you're in the middle of the mm. atlantic ocean so yeah it's about self-reliance i think one of the other things that, you, that that's most significant is that you learn that that the, the middle of the atlantic ocean or, or, or any ocean in that case is it's not a, a sort of a, a negative space on a map a blue area between land masses a kind of nowhere it is a place in its own right and so when you're there and you witness it um, this feeling that you are in the engine room of the earth, you know, the place where the wind comes from, you know, it's, it's an extraordinary privilege, uh, an amazing uh, place to visit. So that all happened in 1998. Your next big adventure, as it were, um, which is where, the, where the, your, your new book comes in, is 2011. I mean, between 98 and 2011, were you still sailing or had the, had the experience in 1998 rather? put you off for a little <laughs> while well the most significant thing that occurred in between those two events was the birth of my third uh, child Lorelai a uh, lovely daughter um, and uh, I don't think I, I, I didn't feel as though it was over I felt as though you know it's a long story about what happened on that second tour and it, it, it wasn't in many ways it wasn't a satisfactory uh, outcome really what, what happened you know it, things went wrong and mm -hmm. you know uh, there is actually another book written about that time called The Paradise Myth, which may well come out as a prequel. Uh, around about uh, 2009, 
2010, I realised that my marriage was in, in trouble. And uh, so I decided that maybe I needed to go to sea to try and clear my head and have a think about what, what was going to, you know, what I was going to do with myself. And so I got the opportunity to go sailing on a boat called Ice Maiden. She had been, um, she'd been locked down in, in New York for two years uh, due to legal disputations. And her, um, her skipper had finally managed to free her up and uh, they were bringing her back from New York via the Great Circle route um, uh, from Nova Scotia to Newfoundland across to Donegal and then on up to um, on up to the uh, the Hebrides and this the advert which was placed said not for the faint-hearted because the North Atlantic route coming back is much more uh, complicated much more difficult than the, the, the trade winds route down from the Canaries and um, so I was expecting to be in storms expecting to be in rough weather and stuff and um, had an extraordinary trip. We didn't really get into any heavy weather, but we were in fog in, in fog for such a, a large amount of the time that in the end I was begging to be in a storm. I'd rather have been in a storm than, than continue with the fog because mm. the fog the fog starts to eat your mind. Uh, it's psychologically really, really arduous. Um, so, um, uh, but the, yes, uh, we, we pulled in at some very interesting places, Martha's Vineyard, Gloucester, which was, you know, Gloucester is where the, the great storm is based. Uh, based around so a, a proper uh, rough and ready large fishing uh, seaport which is about about my favorite sort of place mm -hmm. to be uh, and then of course we went up to uh, the, you know, the Hebrides and, and Donegal very very beautiful places so yeah. that is a, a significant oceanic experience that, that's the only thing that I did in between um, that you know a little bit and the first adventure in the West Indies and my second tour in 2011 on board Odyssey. Yeah. If you want to get yourself a copy of Richard's book, and it's a really good read, it's called Lost Odyssey. It's published by Idle Vice Publications, and it's available on Amazon in paperback and for Kindle. Locally, you can pick it up at The Bookkeeper, Printed Matter, Bookbuster, and The Edge Cafe.